Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the second Sunday after Trinity, June 26, 2022, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran-aflc.org. Good morning again. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the gospel lesson appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. can be found on page 1611 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name, Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Heavenly Father, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you convict us of sin in our lives or that is necessary, and that you comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Yesterday was an important day in church history. June 25th, 1530 was the presentation of the Augsburg Confession in Augsburg, Germany was the very first time that the Lutherans were required to declare what they believed and why it was consistent with the church Catholic, with the church universal, with the church for all time. Now, I make a point to commemorate this partially because every time I do, I get Steve to roll his eyes at me, but it's been my agitation that we should move Reformation Day to June 25th. It's the time where the Reformation was established historically. But for our intents and purposes today, it's also a time for us to consider discipleship and the cost of discipleship, which is exactly what the gospel lesson for today is all about. Now, when it comes to discipleship and the cost of discipleship and living in the church of the 21st century, One word always comes to mind when we consider the church's reputation in the world, and that's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, in today's language, is a word without a meaning. It is used so often that it really, no one understands what it is. In fact, generally what it means when you're accused of being a hypocrite now is, I don't like you. And I don't like that you disagree with me, and so I'm going to call you a hypocrite. 
What it actually means, and I always find this fascinating because I go back and I study this every couple of years, uh, the word hypocrisy is a theater term. It comes from Greek theater, and it means to play a part, to pretend to be something that one is not. And this is where accusations of hypocrisy come into play as far as the church is concerned. For as long as I've been alive, it's been fairly easy for the world to call Christians hypocrites. Now, by and large, this comes from a misguided sense that the world believes Christians demand moral perfection from others, but not from ourselves. And here's where reality sets in. Doctrinally speaking, this accusation of hypocrisy could not be farther from the truth. Christianity isn't a moral system at all. It's a system of grace and forgiveness. Christians, more than anyone else, should recognize that we are sinners in need of the gospel, and the task of the church should be to spread the gospel that we've received to anyone who will receive it. In practice, however, the world gets this right more often than the church would like to admit. Far too often, it's misguided Christians themselves who have turned Christianity into nothing more than a moral system. And then we demand of ourselves what we are, we demand of others what we do not expect of ourselves. You want a, a ready-made example? Ask someone in the Southern Baptist Convention what they're going through right now about how that works itself out. And I'm just going to leave it there. In this case, Christians often get called hypocrites because we often are hypocrites. This really proves itself true in the realm of discipleship. I can't tell you how many programs, how many systems I've seen that talk about making disciples or being a disciple where the sole or primary focus is one of behavior or ethics or commitment. In short, when the church thinks about discipleship, we think about the activity of the disciple rather than the activity of the person we're following. This is why it's important for us this morning to pay attention to exactly what Jesus is saying about being a disciple and about the kingdom of God. And so now we turn our eyes back to Luke 9 this morning, and what we first see is that Jesus lays out the boundaries of discipleship. What is in bounds and what is out of bounds for a disciple? Now, at first glance, it appears that Jesus is, in fact, making discipleship a system of behavior, of do's and to do not. So let's run through the passage briefly and summarize. Outright rejection of Jesus disqualifies someone from being a disciple. Now, this one should be very obvious. The Samaritans did not receive Jesus or his disciples mostly for political reasons of tribal jealousy. Jesus was going to Jerusalem, and, well, that was just not okay. And so they did not give the disciples or Jesus refuge along the way. Rejection of Jesus disqualifies someone from being a disciple. Easy enough. The second one, I think we'd rather skip over. Vindictiveness is not a quality of a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. 
In response to the Samaritans' rejection of Jesus, James and John, the sons of thunder, known for their passionate, misguided idiocy, wanted to rain fire from heaven down on the Samaritans. And this is one where we can enjoy just a little bit of good humor looking back, wondering, what on earth did you think Jesus was going to say? Imagine them walking up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven to get back at these jerks? Was Jesus ever going to say, oh, what a great idea. You guys are so pious. That was never within the realm of possibility. But what we ought to note is that Jesus rebuked James and John for their vindictiveness. Moving on to the second half of the gospel lesson, what we see is that a taste for luxury or prosperity is not a characteristic of a faithful disciple. And and here is an area where we can caveat ourselves to death in discussions about wealth and prosperity or whatever. But let's let the words of Jesus stand for themselves. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, this is very pertinent for specific wings of the modern church that like to talk about private jets and things like that. But for the faithful disciple of Christ, if you're in church work because it's lucrative or prestigious, you're not in it as a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. And then finally... A faithful disciple needs to prioritize the work of God. Jesus gives two points here. Leave to dead the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, now this one, we need a little bit of clarification Because the things that Jesus is condemning here in other places in Scripture are normally good. The act of living out one's vocation and serving faithfully as a farmer is good. Being a farmer does not exclude you from being a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. And taking care of your family and burying your parents when they die is also normally an act of love in your vocations. But what Jesus here is doing is he is situationally highlighting the danger of distraction. If you are always going to commit to something else rather than your duties as a disciple in the kingdom, you're always going to end up as an unfaithful disciple. Jesus' teaching in this passage gives us boundaries to consider and apply to our lives as we reflect on his teaching. But then again, that's the entire point. Jesus, with these statements and with these demands of self-reflection, wants us to look at our own hearts, wants us to consider where we stand as disciples. That's the purpose of the law. Jesus wants us to see our failure to measure up. And so what Jesus has really done is given us the standard of discipleship. Not just the boundaries, but the standard. 
And what Jesus is looking for is perfection. Jesus gives these boundaries or these instructions for the purpose, helping of, uh, for the purpose of helping us recognize our failures. The reality is, rewinding all the way back to the beginning, we reject Jesus with our sin. The most obvious one that those who reject Jesus can't be his disciples is the one that applies to us most frequently. In our sin, and every time we sin, we reject Jesus. No one, no Christian, no human believes that they reject Jesus unless they're an atheist. But the reality of our sin is that we turn our backs on God. We reject God, we contradict his will, and we turn his back on our word. We fail at being disciples. We also happen to be vindictive. I'm going to try to be very careful about how I speak about this because it's so situational. We should stand against evil. And we should celebrate when evil is thwarted. Even when evil is thwarted legally. There is plenty of room for the church to celebrate Roe versus Wade being overturned by the Supreme Court. But what is not good, what is not faithful discipleship, is when Christians gloat or when Christians delight in the punishment of the sinner. When the Christian faith, as expressed in our lives, turns out to be a religion of gotcha, we're not being a faithful disciple. Because we're all sinners, we all deserve punishment, and not even God himself delights in punishing sinners. So we can rejoice when evil is thwarted. We can stand against evil. But we must remember that every soul we come in contact with is someone for whom Jesus has died. We are vindictive more than we like to admit it. We also, more than we like to admit it, chase after prosperity and luxury and even comfort. Not every preacher, pastor, or evangelist is in it for power, prestige, or a private jet. But how many of us whine when the heat in our lives is turned up even just a little bit? For how many of us is it our first move to question God's kindness when one of our creature comforts is removed? And then what if we ramp it up when one of our creature comforts is removed because we're a Christian? I think it's a fact. And this might be lazy argumentation on my part, but I think it's a fact that no country whines about persecution. It is, in fact, persecuted less than America. The th things that the church in America whines about being persecuted for would make a Christian in Baghdad or China or Afghanistan blush. We need to be careful about that. We need to examine ourselves about that. Because of all of this, because of our failures as disciple, 
The last wall to fall is that we all fail to prioritize the work of God and the kingdom of God in our own lives. Now, the whipping boy for this is an easy target. Youth sports. There's a little league game or a soccer game or a hockey game on Sunday morning. Nine times out of ten, or maybe even higher, the family will be at the game instead of at church. That's the easy one, but the easy way never gets us anywhere. How often do we ourselves, how often do you prioritize selfish interests rather than pursuing the kingdom of God in your life? How often do you skip Sunday school and only come to church? How often do you not come on Sunday at all because you're tired? How easy is it to dismiss attending Wednesday night and instead doing something that helps you rest and relax? Now, all of the giggles, this is just Pastor Jason trying to get people to come to his classes. Sure, I like a guilt trip just as much as anyone else. But those are the easy ones. Right now, with our church, how often do you have a gift that meets a need and you haven't met it because it's too hard for you to volunteer? Do you even know what the needs of the church are right now? Do you even know what the needs are among the body of Christ right now? Or do you have tunnel vision? Have you prioritized ease and comfort over the kingdom of God? As we all let this sink in, and believe me, I'm just as guilty of this as the rest of you, there's a bigger point that we must not miss. We must not get lost in the forest because we're distracted by the trees. The point Jesus is teaching here is that none of us is fit for the kingdom of God. On our own, we've disqualified ourselves. And that's exactly where Jesus wants us to be. If it were up to us, we'd all have already revealed several times over that we're miserable disciples. And so Jesus has prepared us for the gospel reality of discipleship. When Jesus closes our gospel lesson this morning, he closes it with the phrase, fit for the kingdom of God. He's already left us with an opportunity for assessment and evaluation. And the entire point of that assessment and evaluation, as we've mentioned, is that we do not measure up. We must recognize our sin, we must recognize our selfishness, and then we must recognize that at the opening of the gospel lesson, Jesus has left us with a gospel nugget to cling to. At the opening of the gospel lesson, before Jesus lays out the cost of discipleship, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that's what Jesus does. Because Jesus goes to Jerusalem to die for sinners just like you 
and me. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem so that he can hang on a cross that was meant for you and me. And every one of those discipleship failures was met by Jesus in his gospel. Jesus was rejected by us, but he takes our place. Jesus meets our vindictiveness with grace, mercy, and compassion. Jesus takes the poverty and depravity of our sin and gives us the luxuries of heaven and eternal life. And all of this is Jesus' highest priority. The cross and the empty tomb is Jesus' sole focus and purpose. No one is fit for the kingdom of God unless Jesus makes them fit for the kingdom of God. And Jesus makes you fit for the kingdom by dying and rising again in your place for your sins. This is the lesson we learned from our gospel passage this morning. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is a tough business. We are constantly rejecting him with our sin. We are more vindictive than we are compassionate. And almost always we will prioritize our comfort and ease over self-sacrifice. But when we recognize that we are fit for the kingdom of God, not because of our actions, not because of our morality, and not because of the genuineness of our commitment to be a disciple, when we believe and confess that we are fit for the kingdom of God because of Jesus, and because of his cross, and because of his blood, and his death, and his resurrection, then we are disciples. Then we are followers of Jesus. And there's one thing disciples of Jesus are. They are free. They are free members of his kingdom. They're free from sin. They're free from the condemnation of the law. And with the instruction of the law before us, we are free to love. We're free to love God, and we're free to love others sacrificially for the sake of the kingdom that Jesus has given us freely. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.